You're listening to the Carnegie Tsinghua China and the World podcast, a series of conversations with Chinese and international experts on China's foreign policy, international role, and China's relations with the world, brought to you from the Carnegie Tsinghua Center here in Beijing. I'm Paul Hanley, the director of the center, and I'll be your host. Today, we're delighted to be speaking with Yukon Huang, senior associate in the Carnegie Asia program. Yukon's research focuses on China's economic development and its impact on Asia and the global economy. Previously, Yukon was the World Bank's country director for China and for Russia. He's an advisor to the World Bank team that prepared the joint Chinese government World Bank China 2030 report. He's also an A-list commentator for the Financial Times and is working on a new book to be published later this year entitled, Why Do Views on China Differ So Much? And today we're going to preview some of his answers to that question on our podcast today. Yukon, thank you for joining us in Beijing, where we consider you here uh, an honorary member of the Carnegie Tsinghua team. Uh, thank you for joining the podcast today. It's a pleasure to be here, Paul. Uh, come here three or four times a year, have an apartment here. I love it when I'm here. We do as well, uh, because you uh, have a lot of important things to say. And uh, as I mentioned, we are interested in understanding um, why Chinese economic issues generate such different and extreme views. Why is a commonly accepted wisdom on these big issues often misguided? How are incorrect assumptions by economists and policymakers? How can these impact Chinese economic policy? One of the things you do very well when you come to China is you take that conventional wisdom and you examine it closely and sometimes turn it on its head. You live in Beijing part-time. I live here uh, year-round. We know the challenges that the city faces with congestion, with traffic, overflowing sidewalks, rising rent prices, competitive, competitive and overcrowded schools. These reality lead most Beijing residents and, and friends that I, that I have here and visitors to assume Chinese cities are too big um, and too crowded, uh, too large. In your analysis, is, do you come out in the same place? Well, this is a dominant impression in China, certainly a dominant impression in Beijing or Shanghai. The government's policy, therefore, is to say, if you want to move from rural areas to the cities, you can go to the smaller cities. Don't go to the big cities. Mm -hmm. But my view is this is wrong. And the reason it's wrong is the best jobs are in the biggest cities. They're more productive. If you look at megacities globally, megacities are defined as cities with a population more than 10 million. And you compare China's megacities to the megacities globally, okay. you will see that China's big cities have lower densities of population than other big cities globally. And that's because China's big cities are too spread out. Here in Beijing, when I moved here early in the 1997 to take my job, they just finished the third ring road. Mm -hmm. Today we have the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh. And we encourage people to live further and further out. And the reason we do that is because the way that China's cities manages land development, it's easier for them to make land available for development further out. They actually discourage dense development in the interior, so it's less dense. People have to drive further. It costs more to provide roads, schools, sewage facilities when you're spread out. Mm -hmm. You get more traffic congestion. Ring roads are terrible mm. for traffic. So everyone gets stuck. Then you have more pollution. So my point, and I've written about this in various, various uh, articles, is that if China's cities were, one, bigger, mm -hmm. the largest cities were bigger and more densely inhabited, it would be less polluted 
the traffic problems would actually be easier to deal with. Mm. And the common wisdom out there tends to be the opposite. Yeah, yeah. Let's turn to um, some external uh, economic and trade issues. Uh, China trade surpluses are, are often pointed to as the major factor which causes U.S. trade deficits. U.S. losing jobs to China, money, uh, uh, excessive amounts of, of, of American dollars being invested in the United States. Can you talk about this dynamic and, and, and give us your sense of this conventional wisdom that we, that we read about often? This is certainly a source of tension between the United States and China. Uh, most Americans and, and many business uh, communities and even labor associations believe that China's huge trade surpluses over the last 10 years is the principal reason why America has such large trade deficit. And they carry that argument even further to say that this is the reason why China, uh, United States manufacturing has been depressed and why jobs are being lost. If you look at the situation, the basic point to make is that China's trade balances, its surpluses, have nothing to do with America's trade deficits. And the easiest way I can explain this is to say that America's trade deficits really became huge around 1999, 2000. And they stayed at that level for the last 10 years and only began to moderate more recently. So it's a problem. America's trade deficit problem can be traced to policies a decade and a half ago. Mm -hmm. China's trade surpluses only started to emerge significantly around 2003 and 4, five or six years after America began to have, already had exhibited a major trade deficit. So there's no logic in saying that China's trade surpluses caused America's trade deficits. They already existed six or five or six years before China became a significant surplus country. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, recently, a, a Chinese scholar at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences said that where we have seen over the past 30 years huge amounts of foreign investment going into China, that the next phase for China is to begin to push that their own investment outside of China. And you begin to see some of this through Xi Jinping's announcement of the new Silk Road, China's announcement of the Asia Infrastructure Bank, the BRICS Bank. Can you give us a sense for what China is trying to do here? What are their objectives, and how will this have an impact both regionally in China's neighborhood, but also beyond? Going to recently, when you talk about foreign direct investment, you're really talking about money coming into China. So China was either the first or second ranked most popular destination for foreign direct investment over the last 20 years. Uh, what you're going to see in the future is that outward flow, outward flow of money from China, whether it's an FDI, loans or commercial transactions, they're going to exceed the FDMI amounts coming in. So it's going to be a reverse process. Mm. Now, some of this has occurred fairly substantially into Latin America or Africa in the last four or five years, sure. largely driven by resources. Now it's going to be much more centered to what I call either money flowing to the U.S. and Europe for a variety of reasons, but increasingly within the Asia region because of China's wish to help develop or fulfill the need for greater infrastructure in Asia. Most of these Asian countries have deficit savings mm -hmm. in the economies. They don't have the resources. China is a savings surplus country. Mm -hmm. 
So it's quite logical for China to say, I will use some of this surplus to basically support infrastructure investment in Asia, which builds more connectivity among the Asian countries. Now, the alternative uh, before all this was essentially excess savings in China invested in United States Treasury bills or European bonds. Mm. This proposal essentially says, let us now use this directly to finance more investment infrastructure in Asia. And whether it's the Silk Road Fund, the Infrastructure Fund, the Asian Infrastructure Bank, or even the BRICS Bank, mm -hmm. China's going to be re-channeling its surplus savings into these vehicles to support more infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Now, I think this financial involvement, this uh, outreach, is also designed to complement its external policy outreach sure. to try to improve relations with its neighbors because of the tensions which have arisen over the last mm -hmm. seven, eight years, particularly because yeah. of the island disputes. Sure. We, we've seen a real effort by the Chinese leadership to try to convince countries on its periphery that not only is its rise not threatening, but that countries on China's periphery will benefit from China's rise. Uh, and, and I think this is one way they're trying to demonstrate. In addition to that benefit that the Chinese get, how will the uh, more developed infrastructure, clearly there's an effort there by the Chinese to develop that infrastructure to bring resources and minerals and, and other resources that it needs, energy resources, into China. That's also in their thinking. Would, would you agree with that? Well, China sees this as being mutually beneficial. Oh. They need resources. They need more trade connections. They need good relations with their neighbors. I mean, what differentiates China with, let's say, Russia? Mm -hmm. Russia, until recently, had oil. And it felt like other countries were dependent upon, that, right. on Russia. So it actually felt that foreign policy, good relations, wasn't critical because people would be dependent upon mm -hmm. it. China exports a broad mix of product lines. It flourishes in a good global trading economy. It needs good relations. So this concept of Xi Jinping has been putting forward, going beyond the China dream to the Asia dream, mm -hmm. is a concept of greater inclusion among all these countries and a greater trade and investment regime which brings broad benefits to everybody. You need more infrastructure. You need to go more rapidly. I need your resources. I also need your markets for my finished products. It should be mutually beneficial. Now, whether it turns out to be mutually beneficial, of course, will vary from country mm -hmm. to country. China used to generate a lot of uh, imports from many ASEAN countries, for example. It had tre tremendous trade deficits with lots of countries in Asia. Those deficits actually have moderated in recent years. Mm -hmm. So some countries in Asia are now, not, are now beginning to say, well, I need a relationship whether it's an investment relationship or trading relationship, but they're also asking themselves, is China going to be a big enough market for mine? Are they going to continue to buy my goods if they're not just raw materials? So these are what I call normal political, social, economic tensions, mm -hmm. and I think it's part of the discussions and concerns one has to look at for the coming years. Well, I've taken your, a lot of your time. I want to have one final question. I want to go back to the topic of your book. Uh, which you're writing, will be published later this year, called Why Do Views on China Differ So Much? And I want to just ask, why is it easy to go online or read a newspaper, see a respected scholar or economist offering such different, widely different views on China? What affects this? What, what, which factors matter the most? Well, let, let me uh, try to sort through a variety of things that matter and, and pick out four particular points here. More than any country, I think, that, that, that we are familiar with, 
geopolitical position and views toward China change dramatically, depending upon whether you're in Washington, mm -hmm. Brussels, Tokyo, in the region. You either have positive, negative uh, perceptions of China, both for economic, but also for political reasons. Yeah. And that just makes it different. The second issue is China shares with the United States one key characteristic. They're huge. When they're huge, and when there are large regional variations, you cannot simplify and generalize from one economic yeah. indicator. And mm -hmm. people tend to do so. Mm -hmm. And so a Beijing is not the same as a Chongqing. Likewise, Kansas City is not New York. Yeah. But people try to make it sound that way. Mm -hmm. Now, third, there are vested interests in China, as there are in any countries, any other country. There are institutions in China, but they're different from the kinds of market institutions you see in the West. Therefore, what is an appropriate or efficient policy response in China is not the same as you see in other countries. Yeah. So we tend to look at that in that kind of textbook or mm -hmm. traditional Western framework. Project our thinking. Project our thinking. Mm -hmm. We misinterpret the nature of the reform or the action in China and tend to say it's not going to be effective or it's not good enough. And lastly, let me just point out, people look at China's economy, and they look at the financial system, the markets, the labor force, the industries, these ghost cities, whatever. Um, they tend to see huge distortions and problems and inefficiencies. And the answer is, these are real. There are a lot of problems, there are a lot of inefficiencies, there are lots of distortions in China, more so than other countries. Yet we have this strange kind of irony. Despite these distortions, They've grown at such huge rates for three decades. Now, if China could therefore address these problems, yeah. these remaining distortions, it also says to us that there's still a lot of potential for better outcomes in the future than there is today. Therefore, they could increase or grow, increase the GDP, grow by 7% or 7.5% a year for another decade. If they can address... If they can address these things. Yeah. There are very few countries that we actually say do this, this, and this, and you could grow at this kind of rate yeah. for 10 years. Yeah. And that makes China actually really different. It doesn't mean that they will actually succeed. But this is the challenge that the leadership has had to face over the last three decades. And the question is whether this new team can do the, do the same. Well, as usual, Yukon, you offer uh, different views outside conventional wisdom, and I find it fascinating to talk with you. Thank you so much for spending time with us today here at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. You're welcome to come back uh, as often uh, and as much as you'd like. That's it for this edition of the Carnegie Tsinghua Center China and the World podcast. If you'd like to read Yukon's new paper on China debt, you can find this and other articles on the Carnegie website at www.ceip.org. I encourage you to visit and see the work of all our scholars at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. Thanks for listening, and be, to sh be sure to tune in next time.